0: Matthew chapter 26, we'll be finishing that chapter today. We're going to kind of back up, to the, uh, back up a little bit from where we've been. The last couple of weeks, we looked at the uh, experience in Gethsemane and then the arrest of Jesus. So we're going to back up before that and then grab what happens at the end of that. The book ends sort of, of Matthew 26. The title of this sermon, you can pick or choose either one you want, is either Peter's Great Fall or Six Sure Steps to a Broken Heart, whichever one is better for you. I want you to take notes, because there will be six steps in this declension that we see of Peter's here, discernible steps, steps that often relate to places that we are at in our lives, and it might be important for you to take note of them, uh, not only on paper, but spiritually, and we'll be asking ourselves this question as we move through and see Peter's great fall, how did he get there, and where am I in relation to that, and what might be some warnings for us this morning? So we're going to read Matthew 26, starting in verse 31. We'll read a few verses, and then we'll skip to the end of the chapter, verse 69, and read to the end of the chapter. Matthew 26, starting in verse 31 from the NIV. This is right after the Last Supper. It says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen... I will go ahead of you into Galilee. But Peter replied, even if everyone else falls away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Skip now to verse 69, if you would. Verse 69, after the arrest of Jesus says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you for the privilege, God, of gathering as your people and sitting in the hearing of your word the opportunity to place ourselves under the authority of your word, to engage in and to receive the proclamation and the preaching of your word. We thank you for that privilege. And we ask that we would fully lay hold of that privilege this morning as your people. We would have open hearts, open minds to your word. Holy Spirit, give us God alertness. Make us alert to what it is God is saying to us and wants to do in us. Holy Spirit, help us to think deeply upon where we're at in our lives and the truth of the gospel and the love of God and what Christ has done for us through the cross. Help us, Lord, to think soberly about sin. Help us to see clearly the roads which we are traveling and the ones from which we ought to relent and repent. Give us wisdom, insight, discernment that we might live faithfully for you. Thank you for your word this morning. I confess it this morning, Lord, it feels hard for me to preach, so I'm asking for your help. I confess my weaknesses, I confess my frailty, my foolishness, and my sinfulness, and I ask that you would have mercy and help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to you and is about you and is helpful to this church whom we love. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So after the Last Supper, there was this disconcerting time at the Last Supper where Jesus had revealed that one of his disciples would betray him, of course Judas. And you can only imagine how offsetting that was, how off-putting that was for the disciples there that night, that, that one amongst their number was a traitor. Jesus talked about this bread that was broken and how it symbolized his body that would be broken and this this cup of wine that was symbolized his blood that would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many and it was kind of a big deal this night and it would have been kind of intense and then at the end of it Jesus says and by the way all of you are going to fall away on account of me because of what I'm doing and who I am and the way that the culture will interact with me right now all of you are going to bail out on me it's not just Judas all of you, to some degree, are going to fall away from me this evening. And he quotes a passage from Zechariah, a prophecy that's predominantly about the second coming, but there's a little bit of foreshadowing here. that says, the shepherd, Jesus, will be struck, and the sheep will shatter. He grounds this in Scripture and the work of God and the promises of God. And then he gives them this great hope. He says, but after I am risen, the hope of the resurrection, I'll meet you there in Galilee. He says to them, you guys are going to have a tough night. But that won't be the end of the story. There's a lot more to come. And then I want you to notice now how Peter responds to these things and what we could only characterize as his missteps, as some bad choices, perhaps some character issues that take Peter to this place of heartbroken and having denied Christ. The first thing that we see about Peter is his pride. Jesus had just warned him, all of you will fall away from me. And Peter responds by saying, even if everyone else does, I won't. Maybe that's true for other people, Jesus, but that's not true for me. Jesus says, this very night, Peter, I'm telling you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. This is Peter's first step in his declension, his fall, is his pride. And I want you to notice here that there is a connection, a direct connection, I believe, between Peter's pride and Peter's unbelief. That is to say, and it's not the first time we've seen this about Peter, Peter did not really believe what Jesus was saying here. Peter believed Jesus in general, and Peter believed Jesus on the big issues, and it was easy for Peter to declare that Jesus was the Messiah, the only unique Son of God. But in certain places where it intersected with certain things that Peter want or sensed about himself, he wasn't always willing to believe Jesus. First time we saw that was back in Matthew 16 where Jesus revealed the cross. Peter said to him, May it never be. Don't do this cross thing. What are you talking about? And Jesus had to say to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. For you have your mind set on man's intentions and not on God's. And now we see the same thing with Peter. Jesus says, and it's Jesus speaking. He warns them. Listen, all of you are going to have a tough night. It's not that Jesus doesn't understand I mean, he's about to be arrested. It's kind of like kind of a big deal. It's a little bit scary. The Roman authorities will be there. All the chief priests, Peter, refuses to believe what Christ's words said about him. He says, well, maybe that's true for other people, but that isn't true for me. And there's this connection between his disbelief and his pride. His pride and his disbelief. I don't know if Peter had this unwarranted pride because he didn't believe or didn't trust Jesus or he had this distrust because he had this pride. But what we see here, this first step to Peter's heartbreak was that there was a failure to take seriously the words of Christ for himself. A refusal to place himself under the authority of what Christ said. Too low a view of God's word, too high a view of self. This is common in our culture. Well, that doesn't apply to me. And we're willing to believe Jesus about the big things often his identity and his death and his resurrection and his ruling and his reigning and his coming again and his mission. But when it comes to issues about our sexuality, or our finances, or our recreation, or the substances that we use, we often have this pride that no longer puts itself under the authority of God's word, but stands aloof from it and says, well, maybe for others that's true, but I. Our culture does this en masse. Most of people in our culture will say, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, but then they won't believe what Jesus says about the way that we ought to live. That's exactly what's going on with Peter here. Pride is this ungodly self-reliance. That's what it was, a self-reliance. Listen, Jesus, maybe everyone else, but not me. I'm willing to even die with you, Jesus. I won't do that. This ungodly self-reliance that draws us away from God-dependent living. From a trustworthy, a a trusting, dependent sort of living. And the book of Corinthians says, Take heed if any man thinks he is strong, lest he fall. And this pride, I think, led Peter to the next step in his fall and his declension, and that was prayerlessness. The next thing that we see happening in the story with Peter is prayerlessness. Verses 40 and 41 say, Then he returned to his disciples as Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and he found them sleeping. You'll remember he had told them to pray. He says, couldn't you keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, Peter, but the flesh is weak. Now this is always the way it goes. When we have this sort of ungodly self-reliance, this puffed up pride that doesn't place itself under God's word, isn't willing to heed the warnings that God gives us, the self-reliance always leads to prayerlessness. It is the opposite of God dependence, which by nature leads to prayerfulness. God, I need you. God, help me. God, strengthen me. God, hold me. God, carry me. God, keep me from temptation. Keep me from evil. And prayerlessness is the evidence of pride. One of the ways that we know we have an ungodly sort of self-reliance happening is through our lack of prayer. That's helpful to think about. Right? I often find in myself a lack of prayer. And what I'm I'm effectively saying there is, God, I got this. (laughs) And what God is always saying to us is, I want to get you. You. Isaiah 58, God waits on high to have compassion on us. He's the God who wants to daily bear the burdens of his people. Give all your anxieties to him because he cares about you. But in effect, when we don't pray, we are saying, God, I got this. Whether we're cognizant of that or not. And part of the the importance of prayer is that prayer is the way that we acquire correct perspective, That's why Jesus said to Peter and the boys, watch and pray. That's the way that we acquire right perspective because our perspective as believers can get skewed in this world. Our own sin skews our perspective. Relational difficulty skews our perspective. Entertainment can skew our perspective. The opinions of others, the way that the world is going, our wounds, all these things, our pride skew our perspective. And prayer is a way that we get right perspective. Watch and pray. Peter, it's kind of a big deal. I'm getting arrested tonight. I'm going to get nailed to the cross. Watch him pray. You need to have the right perspective, Peter, about this situation. Perspective is everything, and perspective is gained for the believer in prayer. And when we don't pray, it's easy to lose perspective and to not see our sin correctly, our relationships correctly, our world correctly. Furthermore, prayer is the way that we resource right living. Jesus said in that passage, pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Peter was saying to him explicitly, listen, if you pray, you will not fall into temptation. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. Prayer is the way that we resource right living. Does anybody here struggle with temptation? Ever? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you are. Prayer is the way that we resource right living in an overarching sense and in an immediate sense. God, help me, I am tempted right now. You know, we don't often do that. We often kind of put up this wall to God when we want to do our sin, pretending that he can't see, but he actually sees. And we often pray the prayer afterward, God, forgive me. But what if we started to pray the prayer, God, help me in the moment of temptation? Peter prayed a genius prayer one time when he was sinking down in the waters of doubt. He said, Jesus, save me. What if in the moment of temptation we pray, Jesus, save me, prayers? Don't we think that Christ is more than willing to reach out with his righteous right hand and pull us out of the miry clay and put our feet on the rock? Prayer is a way that we resource right living not falling into temptation. And furthermore, prayer is a way that we draw strength from God. Jesus said explicitly, Peter, I want you to pray because your spirit is willing. You want to do the right thing, but the flesh is weak. Can anyone relate to wanting to do the right thing, but often doing the wrong thing? Prayer, coming to God, asking is the way that we draw strength from God. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God, please strengthen me for this. Man, I I pray that prayer often on my way home after a long, tumultuous day at work, and I know that I'm going to go there, and my wife has also had a long day with our three-year-old, and she's going to need some love, and my three-year-old's going to need some love, and my 16-year-old's going to have some drama, and I pray, Lord, give me strength to be a faithful husband, and father when I go home this evening? I just think that's the kind of prayer that God is always willing to answer. When I'm confronted with hard relational difficulties, God, give me strength to be humble in this, to receive this, to forgive. God, give me strength to fulfill your calling upon my life. Give me strength. And whatever you're doing... Prayer is a way that we draw strength from God. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So pray, he said. So what if we prayed more prayers of strength? And what prayerlessness then does is deprive us of right perspective and deprive us of divine resource and strength. So then, as believers, we are left to perceive, live, and act on our own there's a part to in the flow of what God has for us and what God wants to do with us. And oftentimes at really critical times, and this was a critical time. So because of Peter's pride, he didn't think he needed to pray. And then because of his prayerlessness, the next step that we see in Peter's declension and his fall is that he begins to act in the flesh. Look what happens next. Verses 15 and 51. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So John 18.10 tells us that this servant of Jesus' was Peter's. was Peter, excuse me. Peter is the one, and the servant was named Malchus of the high priest. Peter is the one who drew his sword and cut off his ear. Peter, this moment, is acting in the flesh. Jesus would say to him, put away the sword, Lord Peter. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. Peter has taken things into his own hands. They started in his own hands. Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but I got this. That was exacerbated by a lack of prayer. So he's lost correct perspective on what's going on in that moment with God in his life. He's, he's acting and living and thinking out of his own resource. So all he knows how to do is wrangle this thing. He's going to cowboy up, wrangle this thing, and get her done. He pulls out the sword and he lops off the ear. That's not what God had in the moment. Jesus would say to him, Peter, don't you think I could call upon a legion of angels from my father? Honestly, don't need your sword. Peter is now acting in the flesh, taking things into his own hands and working from his own incorrect perspective, feelings and weaknesses. And at best, at best, acting in the flesh is trying to achieve God's purposes apart from God. At worst, it's ignoring God's purposes and preferring our own. And the invitation of the New Testament for the believer is to walk in the spirit as opposed to the flesh. And there is this flesh nature and there is God's spirit in us. And Galatians 5 says that the two are often at war with one another. And it confounds the right thing that we want to do or know we ought to do. So the invitation is to walk in the person in the power of the Holy Spirit for the believer as opposed to the flesh. The flesh is always contrary to what God wants us to do. And we, I think, all the time experience that sort of internal battle going on. And Peter just, he was working with the wrong sword here. There is a sword, Paul said in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Peter was working with the wrong sword from the wrong place and his own resources with a skewed perspective. And now, honestly, Peter's making a mess. There's like a bloody ear on the ground. And it's comical because in one of the Gospels, Jesus picks it up and he puts it back on the guy's head and he heals him. You feel like such a dork if you're Peter at that moment. (laughs) Like, okay, Peter, I'll clean up your mess. Gosh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful, 2 Corinthians says. Zechariah 4.6 says that we are to do things not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And so now, Peter, ignoring Christ's word to him, being full of himself, failing to resource himself through prayer, acting in his own wisdom and flesh, Peter finds himself, number four, following Jesus at a distance. Verse 58. But Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Right up to the courtyard of the high priest, he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now, this is a switch. Back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus called Peter along with the others. And it says in Mark chapter three, verse thirteen, Jesus chose those whom He Himself wanted that they might be with Him. Christ had called them to relationship, to witness. God's call on us is always a call to relationship. We are, through the work of the cross, restored to relationship with God, and that relationship is meant to be one of closeness. It's meant to be one of intimacy. That's what we're restored to. It's not just that our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven so that we might engage in a relationship with a holy God, a loving relationship with God. And that is what Peter had done. That is what Peter had known. Peter had walked with Jesus and spent time with Jesus, and Peter was always with Jesus. Now there is this palpable distance between Peter and Christ. Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Intimacy has been forsaken. He's not as tight as he once was. Now I want us to think about our own lives. Peter could have just thought back just a few days and realized, man, there there was a time where I would never have this space between myself and Jesus. Now there's this This distance, Peter is drifting. Hebrews chapter two says, we must pay very careful attention to what we hear lest we drift from it. There's this drifting happening now. There's this falling away. There's this slide down the slope. There's now a distance. I think that's an apropos place to check ourselves. Is there a distance between you and Christ? It, it, It might be spoken of in terms of relational intimacy like your devotional life with him, or it might be spoken of in terms of obedience. You're practically following him. Is there a distance now in either of those places that there wasn't once? Then you too are on the slippery slope. We too find ourselves in the fall, in the declension, in the drift. It's not an alien concept in the scriptures. The scriptures say to us, don't drift. Christ is the anchor to your soul. Hold fast to the end, the scriptures tell us. So we can check ourselves at that point. And you know, there's usually if we say, yeah, there's actually some uh, relational or or following practical obedience, uh, a distance there, we can usually look back and say, oh, wow, there's some prayerlessness there. Oh, wow, there's some pride that that's rooted in. Something that Jesus was calling me to do that personally intersected with my life that I didn't want to do. And Peter finds himself now as a spectator rather than a participant. That's a bummer. Peter had been a participant. Like when Jesus was going to heal a little girl from the dead, he'd say, Peter, come with me, dude. When Jesus was up on the Mount of transfiguration and he was like shown in his glory there, he's like, Peter, come with me, dude. When Jesus walked on water, Peter, come with me, dude. Peter had always been a participant in the work of God, and now he's a spectator. Removed from and watching it from a very strange perspective. You know, what I think is a profound thought about that is it seems as though Peter at this juncture now, Jesus has been arrested and he's gonna be nailed to the cross soon. Peter at this juncture thinks that it would be better for him to put some distance between he and Jesus as Jesus got that close to the cross. Now, we are always faced with that temptation because following Jesus is going the way of the cross. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, if someone wants to be my disciple, they have to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. So following Jesus will always lead to a cross, the place of self-denial. And the f- tendency of the flesh is the closer we get to the cross, the more we feel like we ought to put some distance between us and Jesus because he'll always call us to that place of surrender, dying to self, life in God. And Peter figured it was better for him if the closer this thing got to the cross, he put some distance between he and Jesus. Watch ourselves. God, help us to watch ourselves. Because the Christian life will always be another confrontation, another confrontation with the cross where God brings us to that place of self-denial and forgiveness through what Christ has done for us. I said that Peter had an interesting perspective. Man, Peter is in a frightening space now. His fifth step toward heartbreak is that Peter is actually now warming himself at the enemy's fire. We pick it up in Luke. Luke adds a detail that Matthew didn't give us. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. Look at this fall. The very ones who had arrested Jesus, accused Jesus, the very ones who had mocked Jesus, scourged Jesus, spit upon Jesus, nail him to the cross, shout, crucify him. Peter is now sitting with them, warming himself at their fire. Now let's think metaphorically a little bit here. Let's let's see them as the enemy. We have an enemy, Satan. Let's see them as a metaphor, a picture of the enemy of Christ. When our relational connection with Jesus and our obedience to Jesus becomes distant, then we find ourselves attracted to wanting to connect ourselves with wrong places, opportunities, people, things, and spaces. We find ourselves in seeking to draw warmth from strange fires. Peter is warming himself at the enemy's fire. He's like done exactly what Psalm 1 said not to do. Remember Psalm 1, blessed is one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. It's exactly what he's doing. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. This person will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yield fruit in its season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers. But Peter has gone down that slope and he finds himself at the enemy's fire. I want us to think about what might be sort of the proverbial enemy's fire in our lives or in the culture that we live in. And I think the reason why we get attracted to strange fire, I think the reason why Peter was willing to nestle up with the opposition here, with the enemy, and seeking warmth from their fire. Is because he was lacking what Christ is always promising and calling us into. That is the peace, joy, and satisfaction that comes from a relationship with God. And I mean, you know, can I I get a witness that when we choose to go our own way and we go away from Christ, then this peace is disturbed. Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart right, that peace is disturbed and we, and we start to miss that joy in the Holy Spirit and that abiding satisfaction that comes from intimate relationship with God. And when we, through distancing ourselves from Christ, through disobedience or lack of devotion, whatever that might be, when we begin to distance ourselves and we experience a void in that peace, that joy and that satisfaction, then strange fires become attractive to us. Yes. True. Trying to draw warmth, Satisfaction, comfort from wrong places. This might speak to some of our addictions. This might speak to some of the bitterness that we hold on to. This might speak to some of our secret habits. This might speak to the person that you flirt with at work or about that flirting. This might speak to the things that you do with your computer. This might speak to our spending habits, ouch. Strange fires, false fires. The enemy will always make sure to present us with fires that seem as though they will bring warmth, joy, peace, and satisfaction, but they never deliver, only Jesus delivers. Peter was never more cold than sitting by this fire. And we are never closer to Jesus than when we are close to the cross, what it has done for us and what it does to us. And now Peter's fall is complete. And what we see on the cusp of his heartbreak is denials and disassociations. We read again at the close of the chapter. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, he said but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow is with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Call down curses and swearing to them means in that culture, not that he used foul language or said, I promise. It means that he said something akin to in that culture. May God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. Not hours before, Peter said, I will never fall away. I'm willing to die with you and now my god kill me and damn me i don't know denials and disassociations from jesus you know the invitation of jesus is to deny ourselves and any time that we refuse to deny ourselves whether it's with an issue of temptation or an issue of forgiveness, or an issue of the flesh, whenever we refuse to deny ourselves, we are then effectively denying Christ. If he's called us to this, and we are choosing this, then those are small denials and disassociations from Jesus. And then again, when we, when we don't like where Christ's word intersects with our lives in the way that we want to live, which is what was going on with Peter here, And we say, well, that applies to someone else, but perhaps not me. These are small denials and disassociations. We would probably never say it like Peter said it. And we ought to be gracious with Peter for Peter was in a situation we could never imagine. But we have our own situations, our own opportunities where we can either confess Christ or deny Christ. We confess Christ in our following of him and our obedience toward him and our worship of him, and our witness for him. Or these little denials. And really, it was happening for Peter all the way along. It was a slide, this deny. It went back to when Jesus said, hey, Peter, I just want to warn you about this. And he said, no, Jesus, that doesn't apply to me. This denial has been this slippery slope. This is the full expression of it here. And then we have the outcome. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Some details from Luke here. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I just want us to see very clearly the end result of Peter's choices. He went outside and he wept bitterly. His perspective was skewed the entire time he's sliding through his pride, through his prayerlessness, all this stuff. He's, he's at the enemy's fire. He's not seeing things clearly. He's, he's, he's obviously not seeing things well when he says, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. He's way off track here. But then there's this thing that rattles him back. He hears a rooster crow. He remembers what Jesus said. He has that moment where he says, What am I doing? Please, God, give us those moments more soon in our lives. Pray that with me. Please, God, give us those moments more often in our lives where we are brought to clarity and we say, God, what am I doing? What am I doing right here? God, help us to see our sin more clearly. What am I doing? Peter finally has this what am I doing moment and he goes out and there is nothing for him in that moment but despair. It says he wept bitterly. Just convulsing, despairing, sort of weeping. I just want us to think about our own lives. Peter's choices led him to heartbreak. Are there any choices we are making now the end of which is heartbreak? Heartbreak. Jesus said in John 10.10 that Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and have life more abundantly. And there are two paths you can go by. And are there any choices? Are there any roads we're traveling where we somehow, with the help of the Holy Spirit, right now the end—right now we know the end of that road is heartbreak. From these roads, we must relent. We have to learn from Peter. And I want to zero in on that phrase right there. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Oh my gosh! Just as he was speaking, Jesus was within earshot of his buddy Peter saying, "May God kill me and damn me from lying. I don't even know the man." Jesus was within earshot, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter. You ever gotten that look from your mama? When you're just straight busted, just caught red-handed. I don't think this was that kind of look. I think that as Peter looked, and his eyes met the eyes of Christ, he saw the deepest compassion. He saw endless love. That the eyes of Christ said to Peter, I love you. I still love you. I will always love you. And I think that that is the deeper source of Peter's heartbreak. I don't think that Peter wept in a silo about his sin. I think he wept about his sin in light of the love of Christ for him. That when he saw the eyes of Christ and the eyes of Christ said to him at his lowest moment, at absolute rock bottom, in the depths of unutterable shame, when the eyes of Christ to him said, I love you and you are mine and I chose you, Pete. That in light of so great a love, his heart broke over his own sin. This was a hard night for Pete. Nobody can deny that. These were really hard things. This was a confusing, tumultuous time. Pete made some wrong choices. But you know what? The the hardest times are the times to pay the most attention to the choices that we're making. That's when we often make the worst ones. But it is in those most difficult places, whether it's financial or relational or it has to do with whatever, it is in those hardest places where Christ is most present to us. It's in those deepest spaces of pain. In the valley of trouble, in the valley of accor. the scriptures say, God opens up the door of hope. And God always has a better invitation for us. Each of these failures of Peter's was a refusal to lay hold of a better invitation from Jesus, right? Catch that. There's always a choice in the moment. Peter chose distrust as opposed to belief. God is always calling us to believe. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe the words that I have spoken to you. That's always a choice, there's some faith that's going to be required. Sometimes the easier choice is to not believe, to not trust what God says about us and our sin and our world in the way that we ought to interact with him. But God's word is the inerrant word of God. And we choose to trust it. There's always a better invitation. Peter chose pride and self-reliance where the invitation of Christ is always Humility. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, fall off from me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Peter would write that later on in his epistle. Cheater, Pe- cheater. <laughs> cheater, <laughs> cheater, pumpkin. Peter, thank you, chose prayerlessness when there was unlimited resource to him. He chose a silly little sword when there were divinely powerful weapons. Peter chose to walk in the flesh. And we can always, with the help of God, walk in the Spirit of God. God's Spirit lives in you. God's Spirit comes upon you. God's Spirit leads you. God's Spirit comes alongside of us as believers. There's always a choice between the flesh and the Spirit. Peter chose the flesh, but there was the better invitation to go the way of the Spirit. Peter chose distance. He let himself slide. He let himself fall. He let himself drift. But God's invitation is always one of intimacy. We can always come to him. When the prodigal came home, where did he find the father? He found the father standing outside his home, gazing down the road, waiting for the prodigal to come home. And when the prodigal son was still far off, the father, a picture of God, ran to him, fell upon him, embraced him, began to kiss his neck over and over, the text says, put a robe upon him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and said, kill the fatted calf and have a party. My boys, come home. There was no moment of grudge holding from God. There was no arm's distance from God. There was no punishment from God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans 8, chapter one says. Romans chapter eight, verse one. God is always extending through Christ and the forgiveness of the cross, intimacy with himself. He doesn't hold a grudge. He's not like you, he's not like me. We don't have to work our way back in. The Father waits on high to have compassion on us. Peter chose the false fire when there is the true fire of the love of God offered to us. The only fire that satisfies and truly warms. Peter chose denial when there is always the opportunity of confession. Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Jesus would say, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. Peter, quite honestly, a hard way to say it, but he like made his own bed of heartbreak when there's joy in the Lord that is offered to us. Could have been a different night and a different end. The good news to remember is that when we are confronted with these slippery temptations, we have always been offered a better invitation in Christ. Think about the opposite of what you're doing and discover God's will there. And here is the ultimate good news. Peter had said at the beginning, Jesus, even if everyone else falls away from you, I will never leave you. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. all talk, no action. But what would Jesus do for Peter? Jesus would go and die for Peter. That's the good news. It's not that we will stick with Jesus or that we would die for Jesus. It's that Christ has died for us. And Jesus would say to them, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I am with you even to the end of the age. The good news is that even though we fail tremendously, Christ has died for us. He has looked us in the eye with his unfathomable love and he has said, I will never leave you. I am with you always. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is not that we could do better than Peter did. The good news is that Christ has done better than Peter. Christ has done perfectly for us on our behalf. And so maybe you have found yourself on the slippery road already. Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit has revealed some steps in your own fall. I want to end by reminding us of this. Jesus had said, Peter, after I'm risen from the dead, I'll meet you in Galilee. And that first Easter morning, that first Sunday morning after Jesus was crucified, some women went to the tomb and they found an angel there. And the angel said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples, say it with me, and Peter... He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Look at the kindness of God. He sent an angel who said, Listen, go tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. He's going to meet you in Galilee. Just like he said, and make sure you tell Pete. Because Pete's down in the dumps right now. Peter's heartbroken right now. Peter thinks he's too far gone but you're never too far gone for the love of God. Go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter that Jesus will meet him in Galilee. And maybe you feel like you're too far gone or you're sliding down the road, that the hill is too steep, the slope is too slippery. You are never beyond the saving power of Christ. Jesus wanted Peter to know through the words of this angel that his great fall was not the end of the story. It never is. Our great failures are never the end of the story. Christ's great work on our behalf is the end of the story. And so Peter went, I'm sure, humbly up to Galilee. And there when he was fishing, he saw Jesus on the beach sitting there with a fire. Peter in the boat threw off his clothes and he jumped into the water and he swam to the beach and he went and he sat at the fire with Jesus and Jesus fed him fish and bread. There's a better invitation for you. There's a different offer than the road that leads to heartbreak. Christ is calling you to himself. Don't be afraid to repent of your sins. They destroy us. Turn to Jesus he heals us. He forgives us. He restores us. Don't continue in your prayerlessness. My goodness, pray today. It's our prayerlessness that got us in this mess. Call out to God who waits to have high, uh, compassion on high, for he loves you more than he could ever express. Thank you, God. I pray for us sinners today, Lord, that we would be quick to repent of our sins. And that you would help us to be quick to receive the forgiveness of Christ. That you would heal our waywardness, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Heal our waywardness, Lord. Please, God, would there be rooster crows in our lives today that would rattle us out of the crazy places that we are and help us to see clearly? Please, Lord, those wrong relationships, those wrong things, those areas of deceit, those areas of bitterness and unforgiveness that have us just bound in suffering, please let a holy rooster crow in our lives that would rattle us to right perspective that we would see the love of God in Christ. repent of our sins and experience forgiveness and newness that as Peter would later say in the book of Acts to all of Israel times of refreshing come from being in the presence of the Lord when we repent. Let that be our experience today, please God.